Okay, welcome to this evening's session of Kingdom 101. If you are listening in to the audio recording, we want to welcome you also. And let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, once again, Lord, we praise you, we thank you, we love you, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity to get into Scripture. Thank you for speaking to us, Lord, and I pray that our hearts will be ready ground for you as the Word is sown. And I ask, Lord, that uh, you'll remove all distraction, you'll take away all tiredness, and that, Lord, our ears of our hearts and our spirits will be attentive to hear what you want to say to us this evening. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This evening's message is quite interesting, the title I'm referring to. It's called, Where's Wally? Now, I'm again looking around the room and I'm just wondering how many of you are familiar with uh, this title called, Where's Wally? Would you put up your hands? Not too many, yeah? but if you deal with young children or slightly younger people, uh, you will be more familiar with Where's Wally? Let me just show you, um, or at least explain to you what is this. Where's Wally is a series of children's books. And they are created by the English illustrator. His name is Martin Hanford. And it started way back in 1987. This character that you see up on the screen, he's Wally. You see, he's wearing a, a red and white bobby hat with striped um, sweater or a shirt. He's got glasses. And the idea is that you're supposed to spot Wally, look out for Wally. So if you saw the double page spread, the whole big picture there, it's full of people, and the illustrator was asked to come up with a series of books that you will have a big crowd, whether at the beach or in different scenarios or different situations. Can you see? And you're supposed to look for Wally. So the children would spend time opening up the book and poring over the double page spread looking for Wally. Where's Wally? There's a United States and Canadian version called Where's Waldo? So there's Wally and there's Waldo. And to make it even more interesting, there are other, he's got other characters that are inside, but they also have shades of white and red, sort of like to distract you. It looks a little bit like Wally, but it's not really Wally. He even has a nemesis or an enemy, which is a wizard. And his name is Oddlaw, which is upside down of Waldo. Yeah, all these little things, you know, it's just to have fun. Where is Wally? So from where you're seated, and if you're looking at this, can you tell me where is Wally? A bit difficult, huh? Even if you hold it directly in front of you, it might be challenging also. Uh, but that's the beach scene, and I'm here to reveal to you Wally. Okay, that's where he is. And in a while, I'm going to show you and explain to you why I've, you know, uh, titled this message, Where is Wally? If you're wondering whether we're still in the book of Matthew, yes. <laughs> and this other character, now this one is not Wally. <laughs> we know now that this is John the Baptist, Yeah. But it looks a little bit by, like, like Wally um, in the way that he's standing and holding this stick. As I was preparing this evening's message, I came across this thought, you know, or, or I was thinking, it's about Jesus coming to the River Jordan to be baptized by John. We've come to that point, finally. 
But the interesting thing is that John, as the forerunner, he knew that that's his role and that there would be one mightier than himself who would come after him. But then there's a little problem. When would he come and who was this? Right? Huh? Sometimes we talk as if, oh, we know, you know, Jesus would have WhatsApp him and said, I'm coming now. But it doesn't say that in the scripture, right? But we presume, oh, maybe he knows the exact time that Jesus would turn up. And so we've got John the Baptist every day at the Jordan. Hundreds of people, maybe thousands, would come to him. And he would be wondering, where's the Messiah? Who, who is Who's the one that's to come? And so he might be playing a little game called Where's Wally? Right? You know, the whole group just comes and he's like trying to spot that the thing is, the one he's looking for might look exactly like any one of these. Where's Wally? Or maybe in our context, just to make sure that we're using our national language, Dimana Messiah. Where's the Messiah? Now he's looking left and he's looking right. Where is the Messiah? And that's why I came out with this little title. It's quite cute because it's, it's John looking up. You know, is this the one? Is this the one? Or maybe he's there. You know, maybe he's there. Just in case, uh, just for fun. Do you know Wally is also in this picture? Yeah, can you spot him? Then he's there. <laughs> this is to keep you awake, guys. Sorry for those who are listening to the audio. But let's read the scripture. We're in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we have this account in the Bible that we are very familiar with, that we may have taken certain things for granted as I tried to share with you. But here, John is trying to identify who is the one. He knows there's one who's coming. So we'll go through a few points and then, as always, we'll draw a conclusion and tie back again even to the title and see how it would apply to us. The first thing we see is that the forerunner identifies the Messiah. This whole message is about identification about identifying something or identifying someone. So Jesus comes to Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And I ask myself, they are cousins. We know that they are cousins. But sometimes when you read the scriptures, it, it seems to me that they might have been long lost cousins. I mean, Jesus was in, in, his, in the town of Nazareth around Galilee and he was holding a job, right? I mean, he was the carpenter's son. But John the Baptist, as we know, was somewhere in the outback, in the wilderness. I don't know whether they caught up for a cup of coffee to chill or not. 
or whether did they really come together. But it seems as if they're long lost cousins because in, in John chapter 1, verse 31 and 33, twice he actually says this, I did not know him. I did not know him. All right. And when I came across this passage, I was a little bit stunned because like maybe many of you, I presume that these two cousins must have like played together or spent time together. I did not know him. And he says in 1 verse 26, before those two lines of, I did not know him, John actually told the people, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. In other words, he's like one of you. He, he can move in and move out, and you wouldn't have known this would have been the one. You can't spot him. You can't see him. He's so part of you. He's one of you. And it is he who is coming after me. It's preferred before me who send those strap. I am not worthy to lose. But even as John would have declared this and it's recorded for us, yet somehow when Jesus showed up that day, he knew. Isn't that odd? Somehow when Jesus presented himself to John, John was, was able to say, I can't baptize you. Isn't that an interesting thought, right? First he says, I did not know him. But when Jesus turns up, John says, man, I, I cannot do this. You should be the one baptizing me. How did he know? And I'm scratching my head. I'm again speculating that John being filled with the Spirit, he might have been prompted by the Lord, right? To say, this is the one. And he was so confident, he was so sensitive, he was able to identify Jesus as the one. And at the same time, perhaps there was something about Jesus. Perhaps there was a presence about Jesus. That the moment he comes onto the scene and he, he approaches John, John just sensed something in charismatic speak. There could have been something so special or so different about Jesus. And that's why they had this exchange. I can't baptize you. You should be the one doing it. And Jesus then says, it's okay, let's do it. Let's fulfill righteousness. In other words, it's got to be done. So let it be so. Then we read John chapter 1, verse 29 onwards. Then it says, the next day. You know, sometimes when you read the scriptures, you've got to insert certain things in between the verses. The next day would have meant Jesus would have already been baptized. He was just declaring the next day Jesus, uh, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, not to be baptized. But he was already baptized and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him. You see, he was already reporting something that had already taken place. Now I know who he is. But before this, I did not know. Now, after Jesus' baptism, he can openly point to Jesus and say, this is he. This is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said. This is he, and in the end he concludes, I have seen 
and I have testified, this is the Son of God. Sometimes when we read Scripture, we allow tradition or we allow familiarity to cloud the way we understand it, don't we? We presume certain things. But when I look at this, I, I realize, man, wow. Jesus was hidden, so well hidden, until the time of His manifestation. And John did a where's Wally. Every day he was looking out for the Messiah. Is this the one? Is he coming today? And when the Lord appears, he identifies him and he testifies. The beautiful thing about this baptism is also not that only John identified the Messiah, Jesus in coming to John and being baptized by him also identifies and affirms John. Meaning to say, Jesus comes and whatever has been said about John by the religious leaders and people who did not believe in John's ministry, by submitting to John's ministry, Jesus is saying, this is good. This is right. What John is doing, he is doing it correctly. He's fulfilling assignment. He says he's the voice, he is. He's the forerunner, he is. And if he's the forerunner, then I'm the one that comes after him. So Jesus gives his approval, and at the, this baptism, at the same time, marks a transition. Remember, John is always a man of transition. But it is at this baptism that John would, as it were, complete his one last major task. If you look at Scripture, this is it, man. After this, you don't hear much of John anymore. He continues to baptize still, but his ministry begins to decrease. And after this, Jesus, after validating John's ministry, he takes over from John and thus Jesus would increase. And so you see John chapter 3, verse 30. That's why John the Baptist declares, it's okay, he must increase and I must decrease. That's it. My, my role is coming to an end. I'm coming, I've finished my race in that, in that understanding. And you actually see that uh, recorded in Acts concerning John the Baptist. So the first thing, as we see of identification, the forerunner identifies the Messiah. We, next, we see that the Messiah identifies with his mission. In this baptism, we see that the Messiah accepts his assignment. When I use the word mission, I always like to use the word assignment also. It's something that the person has been sent to do. So Jesus answers and says to John, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him. Now, what was it that John or Jesus was trying or was going to fulfill? Do you know in the Old Testament, in the time of consecration and the dedication of priests, there would be a time of washing, a rite of washing, and later on of anointing. And the priests would be commissioned at 30 years of age. So there's one verse there for you. 1 Chronicles chapter 23, verse 3. Now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 years and above. 
So at 30 years of age, the priests would be commissioned. That's when they begin their ministry. And we're told in Exodus chapter 29, in verses 4 and 7, it says, Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall wash them with water. That's an act of purification. And then in verse 7, after you have done all this, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So there is a washing and there is an anointing. Later on in Leviticus chapter 8, verses, eight and, uh, verses 6 and 10, you will see that Moses carries these instructions out accordingly. So Jesus, in coming to the baptism of John, he was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, recorded in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. I just realized it's the exact opposite of 1 Corinthians chapter 23, verse 3. And this is Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus was about 30 years of age when he started his ministry. And we are told that as he is washed, as a priest would have been washed, Later on, he comes out of his baptism, oil which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes down upon him and rests on him. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 10, verse 37 onwards. The word that you know, which is proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So Jesus, in coming to this baptism, was really fulfilling righteousness according to the law as a priest to be commissioned, to be dedicated, to be washed, and to be anointed. But there's something very special about this priest because we are told that he is of a different priesthood. Right? Right? Because in Psalm 110 verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. It says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And I find it's really symbolic because John the Baptist, if you remember, he was born into a priestly line after the order of Aaron. And in John saying, I now must decrease... And Jesus now must increase. Isn't it wonderful to see the symbolic end of the Aaronic line and the beginning of the Melchizedek priesthood? Very clear now. Once you understand, you see, the Messiah identifies with his mission. He comes as the high priest of the new order. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would have to do a couple of things, and one of which is that he has to take from the congregation two kids of the goats. Two goats. And one of the goats will be slain, and the other goat will be called a scapegoat. That's where we get this word, scapegoat. You want to blame anyone? Put it on the scapegoat. Yeah? So it's biblical, see? Not the blaming part, I mean the name, scapegoat. So there are two goats. So it says one you have to do as a sin offering. And then they will cast a lot, right? One will become a sin offering. 
But the goat on which the Lord fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So Jesus, in presenting himself for baptism, accepts his mission as the Messiah to be both the sin offering as well as the scapegoat. Because later on in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. That's the baptism of suffering. That's the baptism of Jesus upon the cross. So when he comes at this water baptism, one part of his mission is for him to accept that he will be that sin offering. He will have to be slain and offered for all sin. But what happens to the scapegoat? The priest will lay hands on the scapegoat and symbolically it means that when he does that, all the sins of Israel is transferred on this goat. After he does that, he doesn't keep the goat there. They have to lead this goat out of the city into the wilderness to represent that the sin is removed out of the congregation and the people of Israel. The sin is taken away. So if you look at this word called Azazel, it means literally two words, goat, and the next word, removed or taken away. The goat that is taken away. And if the sin is upon this goat, then thus the sin is now taken away. Now are you trying to catch that? Can you catch that picture? Don't miss this, you know. Here we have Jesus coming for baptism. John symbolically places probably his hand on Jesus, lays hands on this sin offering as well as this scapegoat, transfers all sins of Israel upon Jesus. And after Jesus comes up, where does he go? I'm running ahead of you guys, right? In the next verse we read, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Behold, this is not the goat only, this is the Lamb who takes away the sins, not just of Israel, but of the world. See, this baptism is about the Messiah identifying with His mission. And we know that at the end, we, we, you know, it becomes clear, Jesus Himself is the high priest. He Himself is the sin offering. He Himself is the scapegoat. Because He Himself is everything. The third thing we see is, not only does He identify with His mission, the Messiah also identifies with sinners. So he tells John, let's, let's do this baptism. Let's fulfill righteousness. But we know that John's baptism was one of repentance. And that is why John looked at Jesus and says to him, look, there's, there's nothing you need to repent of. I can't baptize you. I don't have to do this for you. 
Instead, you should be baptizing me. And so Jesus, being sinless, he had no reason to be there. But you see, he was one of them. So in Jesus coming to the baptism, he says, look, I'm identifying with everyone who has sinned. I'm willing to stand in place with them. So Jesus becomes one of us so that he can, he can become a substitute for all of us. So that he can die in the place of sinners. If he does not identify with us, then he cannot understand us. Then he has got no place to be, you know, a, a, a mediating as a high priest. That's why Hebrews says that we don't have a high priest who does not understand us, but he who was tempted at all points and yet without sin. He is worthy. He's one of us. Jesus identifies himself with sinners. And as he does that, his water baptism, as we've already uh, shared that a little bit earlier, looks forward to his baptism of suffering upon the cross. And so righteousness had to be fulfilled because sinners would draw the penalty of death and someone would have to die. So he says, let's do it. Let's fulfill righteousness. Because in my going into the water is to signify my death, my burial also. And I'll identify with all sinners, not just in Israel, but for all, for all the world. So the forerunner identifies the Messiah. The Messiah identifies with his mission. His mission has to do with sinners. So Jesus identifies himself with sinners. And a beautiful thing is that when he comes up out of the baptism, the Father Himself, Heavenly Father, identifies His Son. And this is an affirmation of who Jesus is. It's not enough just for John to say, oh, this is the one. He recognizes Him. He spots Him. Jesus gets baptized and He comes up and the Heavenly Father, as a spirit descends like a dove alighting upon Him, a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this is very special because there are only three occasions, as we can understand from Scripture, that a voice would come out to affirm the Son, to encourage the Son, to declare the Son, and to identify Jesus as the One. This is the very first time. Just before Jesus enters into His ministry, God the Father identifies Jesus. Along the way, we see on the Mount of Transfiguration in ministry, God the Father again declares, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And finally, on the road to Jerusalem, as He approached the cross, in John chapter 12, verse 28, another voice came out from heaven so that the people will hear it and I believe the Son would also receive it. The Father identifies, this is my beloved Son. And there are many implications of sonship. It's not just, oh, you know, this is my son. This, that, that's about it. We see that in biblical understanding, sonship is key. 
It's important to understand it. I believe we'll get a little bit more deeply into this perhaps in the next message where we unpack this one verse even more. But quickly, we're talking about covenantal sonship. Israel was the firstborn. Jesus becomes the new Israel. We look at the nativity sonship, i.e. the birth of Jesus Christ. He didn't just appear into any family. He was born into the line of Abraham, born of God's Spirit, and God is affirming that. It's also about messianic sonship, where God says to David, I'm your father and you are my son, and if this is not the, the son of David, then this is also my son. And thus, this is the Messiah to come because God promised David that from your line, there shall be no end. There's also a declaration of personal sonship in that Jesus himself had a relationship with the Father. He says, I and the Father, we are one. I came from the Father. I was sent by the Father. So it was important that the Father identifies the Son. And in doing so, it was a broad declaration to each and every one who was present to say, this is the one. This is the one. He is the Son of God. And if He is the Son of God, then the mission of the Son of God will be a true and correct mission. And it will be effective. At this baptism, not only the Father was present, but the Spirit was also present. Obviously, the Son was present. You see the fullness of the Godhead in this. And this is really very encouraging for me. Because this is at the, at the edge of Jesus stepping into His ministry. He hasn't begun anything yet. After this, He will be propelled quite quickly into all His assignments towards His main one at the cross. You know why it encourages me? And I hope it does for you too. See, we are talking about assignments that God has given to each of us. And how many times have we felt that, you know, when we receive an assignment or a mission, we've got to pray for 1,000 confirmations, right? We feel so alone, we don't know whether we can make it, whether we can do it or not. But, you know, as the Father affirms the Son, the Father affirms each and every one of us who are sons and daughters, amen? The fullness of the Godhead, the Bible says, is in Christ. And we who are in Christ, we partake of the fullness of God, we have the approval of the Father. We have the anointing of the Spirit. And we have, together with Christ, we are in Him. Amen? Jesus is with us. And this is something that has got to resonate within our hearts. The Father identifies the Son, and I believe as He looks down on myself and each of you, isn't it wonderful if you can hear Him say, This is my son. This is my daughter. And with that, he says, go do what you're supposed to do. The fullness of God is with you. Have you looked at all this about John the Baptist, about Jesus identifying his mission, about him identifying with sinners, the Father identifying with the Son? We mustn't leave without understanding this final point. That today, when you and I go through a believer's baptism, it's very different from what Jesus went through. It's definitely different from the baptism of repentance which John preached. Although we are called to have a life lived out of repentance. 
But as we look at all these things that have happened for Jesus, in Jesus, and through Jesus, in the believer's baptism, the promise that you and I have is that we get to identify with the Messiah. And in that, we as sinners are identified with the Messiah. Are you following? We not only get to identify with Him, we are identified with and by Him. Two very important points. And I'm concerned because for many, the rite of baptism today has become very ritualistic. It's like entry into a local church. I mean, I'm not saying it's not important to come into a local community. It is. But people look at it as, you know, that's like the final hurdle before I, I join a church. And if, if a church does not clearly explain what the water baptism is all about, many believers can still miss out on this awesome promise that we have. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says, Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So he makes one reference of us identifying with the death and the burial as well as the resurrection of Jesus. The second reference is seen in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, where we are said to be buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. We get to identify with Jesus and we are identified by Jesus. This is the key. This is the key for us. And the promise that comes out of an understanding of baptism is, is tremendous because I give you just three big points where I summarize from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 7 of Romans. Firstly, the old man was crucified. There's no more old man in us. It's dead. Some of us still give this old man or old woman too much credit. Is it true? We keep saying, oh, but, you know, but, but it's the old man. He's dead. If you want to declare, declare a truth, you know, if you're struggling with something, I can understand that. But the truth in Christ is the old man or woman is dead, is crucified with Christ. And when you were raised with Christ, you are now a new man, a new creation. And so how many of you are new men and new women in Christ? Amen? And that's us. And that's what we have to understand in and through our baptism. We are making too many excuses, friends. We are declaring still too much a lie or we're declaring a past where we should be declaring a truth to say, I'm a new man today. I've been immersed into Christ. I've been baptized into Him. I am identified with Him and I'm identified by Him. The old man is dead. And because the old man is dead, my, I'm dead now to sin and I'm now made alive to God. So if sin should be calling you and knocking at your doors, you can safely look at sin and say, sorry, hot, dead man, don't answer. Want to say amen to that? Amen. Yeah? 
But at most of the time, when sin knocks at our door, we go, yes. <laughs> the old man is dead. Have you ever seen a dead man sin? I haven't. We can go opposite to Lavender and see whether any dead people are sinning. See, the old man is dead, and we have to understand that. We're raised a new man in Christ, and we are alive to God. The second thing is, because we are a new man and the old man is gone, then in death, the master has changed. Sin no longer is our master. We have a new master. And his name is righteousness. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul explains it very simply. The one you obey, you are slave to that one. So if you obey sin, then you are still a slave to sin. But if you say, no, I'm not obeying you anymore because I'm dead, but I'm now new in Christ, then you're no longer a slave to that sin. You are slave now to a new master. He's called righteousness. So you present your members as instruments of righteousness. So what are your members? What do your hands do? Do they do the acts of righteousness? Where do your legs take you? Do they walk the path of righteousness? What do your eyes look at? Do they look at things that are righteous and turn away from things that are unfruitful? What does your tongue do? Do they speak words of life or do they speak words of death? Do you declare righteousness or do you speak unrighteousness? Do you speak a blessing or do you pass gossip and slander all around? We have a new master, you see. And that's what baptism is all about. And when we see what Christ has done for us, we say, man, praise the Lord. The third thing is that we have a new marriage. And because you have died, the old person has died, and by law, to fulfill righteousness, a marriage is only dissolved by death. So since you have died with Christ, you are released from this relationship with what we understand as the law. And the law kills you because of what it requires of you. Now let me rephrase that because I try to explain to us that it's sin that takes advantage of the law that kills us. So when we say the law kills us, it really, it's really sin that kills us because the law shows up sin in us. And because we are released from this relationship, we are now married to another who is Jesus Christ. Amen? So we are now a new marriage. And this marriage is one of love where we do things for the Lord because we love Him. I mean, husbands and wives, isn't it wonderful that you do things for your spouse because you love to do and you want to do? If you are telling me, but I have to do, i got a problem. Huh? The relationship needs a little bit of a revelation and some work of love. Amen? Right? There are certain things that we will do and we say, oh, very ritual. What to do? Marry to him. Uh. Marry to her. Uh. Isn't it wonderful if we would say, I do it because I love? Yeah? It's a relationship of love. And it's no longer under the old letter, but under the newness of the Spirit. This is what it means. That's our baptism. And I'm 
concern, like I said, because sometimes I talk to Christians and I ask, can you describe to me what's the significance of your baptism? They cannot say anything. They don't know. They just think that it is a ritual that Christians go through. And I said, do you know the promise that's contained within this? And they said, I don't know. But let's be fair to the churches and to the leaders because I've also realized after quite a few years that I can teach it 20 times and ask the same person and the person still say, I don't know. Don't look at me like that. You know what I mean. Yeah? I mean, we can do our part. We can teach it. We can say it. But if it's, there's no revelation within the heart of that person, then this person will forever, at least for this time, not be identifying with the Messiah or by what the Messiah has done. And that's why the church of Jesus Christ still struggles. We're still looking for that Christian. We're still looking for that Wally. <laughs> Can't differentiate You know, at the same time, we are also commissioned and dedicated under a new and a royal priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvellous light, who once we were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Jesus was commissioned as the high priest of a new order called the Melchizedekian priesthood. It's a better priesthood. He ushered in a better covenant. It's a new covenant. We are all a part of that. But as he was commissioned and as he was dedicated, you know that you and I, we are washed by the blood of Jesus, anointed by the Holy Spirit for also a new assignment. My question is, do you identify with your mission? Do you accept your assignment? We are kings and priests in Jesus Christ. I was hoping to have an amen. We have kingly roles, assignments. We have priestly assignments. We represent the kingdom of God. And when the church doesn't know that, that's why we have to awaken them, to align them, so that they can be assigned. Then they ask, assigned do what now? Your kingly and your priestly assignments. All of us. Can you see how important this final point is? That's why I don't want you to leave this place without understanding this. If not, it'll just be a teaching about, oh yeah, John the Baptist came, identified Jesus, Jesus comes, you know, I, I've heard that before, my pastor preached it, he comes out, so nice, heaven open, spirit comes down, father says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's have the benediction. Full stop. Do you identify with the Messiah, my friends? Do you identify with your mission, my friends? I want to give you a challenge in closing. I want you to look at this picture once again. And this is another double-page spread of Where's Wally? 
What do you see? I know you see like a huge mess, right? A lot of people. And I'm describing this as detailed as possible for the benefit of the listeners on the recording. But do yourself a favor, go into a children's section and look at, where's Wally? Try and look for Wally. Can I suggest to you that this might be representative of the picture we see of society? Lots of people doing their own things and all. My question is, where is Wally? Wally is hidden somewhere. We know he's there, but he's somewhere. But even if we should spot Wally, is he doing what he's supposed to do? Or is Wally just blending in with the crowd so that you don't get to pick him out? And I hear this question so clearly within my heart. It's like, are Christians like that today? That we are in society, we know we are there, we are, we are hidden in some way, and in some sense it's good that we are hidden because, you know, so that we don't stick out too much and we do our part. The question is, are we doing our part? Or are we just going with the flow? That we are like a wally in there, looking the same like someone else, very hard to pick out. And maybe that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to the patterns of the world. I mean, we are there to be a difference, right? We're there to, to influence someone. But the question is, are we doing that? But let's look at our Singapore crowd. This is a real picture of the Singapore crowd. And I want to believe that God has already positioned His people in place. You know, as I go around interacting with other ministers and other Christians, as much as we are challenging ourselves to see, are we just going with the flow? You know, are we hidden and, and not really going about our assignments? They are also God's soldiers in key positions. And when I say key positions, I'm not talking about leadership, governmental roles and that. No, these are common people, like you and myself, you know, all the, just common folk, like a Wally. God has placed people in each of these sectors. And these are moving, they are praying, they are touching lives. These are like the, 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 the Christians that, that need to make a difference in there. Isn't it like a picture of where's Wally? I mean, we're all part of society and yet we are different. We're supposed to be different and called out. In that society, we're supposed to be spirit-filled, spirit-led. God's people are all affirmed by Him as the Father. And once we take on these assignments, it, it begins to have an increasing influence. And not because of ourselves, but because Jesus is increasingly being revealed in and through what we do or what we say. And just like a panel of where's Wally, there are also red herrings. In other words, there are also the false ones. And they could appear as Christians. They can appear as do-gooders. But we have to be careful of these deceptions. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Maybe it's not where's Wally. It's where's Akipus. You notice the one I'm describing? The, 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 a common person, right? A common folk. Nameless. Almost anonymous. I'm describing Akipus to you. 
And so let me read you some questions. Maybe it's good for us to ponder this. Who or what defines you? If you're in society, are you allowing society to identify who you are? Are you identified by what you do in your office, by your title? Or do you know your identity in Christ? And if you know that, then the question is, is Christ and Jesus being increasingly revealed in and through you? Are you secure in your relationship with your Heavenly Father? Do you identify yourself as a child of God? A son and a daughter is not just intellectual understanding that, yeah, I am a child of God. You know, do you understand what that means? You're loved of the Father. You're affirmed of Him. You're identified by Him. The next question is more, even more challenging. Do others have trouble identifying you as a follower of Christ? You know, we can say all we want. We can declare, we can affirm, we can pledge. The question is, when we are out there, do people identify us easily and readily? Or do they have to play a Where's Wally? Can the leading and the work of the Spirit be identified in your life? Can the people see the work of the Spirit evident in you? Whether in church or whether it's outside, is the Spirit always with you and upon you and, you know, leading you? Don't keep it just for church only. Lah. And of course, finally, do you identify with your kingly and priestly assignment. Do you identify yourself as an archippus? Like Wally, he's hidden somewhere. He's almost anonymous. But you and I know, God knows where we are, right? He can pick us out just like that. An archippus is aware, but he's not apathetic. And our keepers understands his assignment. He doesn't just get caught up in the activity of the day. And our keepers is anything but aimless. I want to close with a couple of verses. This is usually used by prayer intercessors and prayer teams. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 29 and verse 30. By the time Ezekiel, in his prophecies, he was already showing up a nation that was corrupt, that was not walking in the ways of God. And so this is what the Lord says in verse 29. The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. So I sought for a man among them, who would make up a wall. Did you hear that? I sought for a man among them who would make up a wall. God's looking for a wally. Right? He's, it's biblical. Don't ask me where I get these things from, okay? I mean, I prepare the messages and suddenly this verse pops into my mind and all I could remember was, Lord, there's this verse about standing in the gap. 
right? And I looked it up, and when I read it, I was so surprised. And it's like God smiling at me saying, yeah, I'm looking for a man amongst this one whole bunch who will be a wally, who will make up a wall, who will stand, who will make up a hedge because the walls are breached. The walls are broken. And that this one person or persons would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. And friends, I'm here to challenge you to, to, to really consider this. Do you know that this is what we mean when we talk kingdom assignments? Amen? This is what we're really, this is what it all boils down to. God is saying, look, I'm looking for someone who would say, I accept this assignment. I'm going to repair this wall. I'm going to stand in this gap. I'm, I'm going to build a wall here. I'm going to raise up a hedge down here so that this family can be protected. This, this mother can be relieved of something. This child can understand love. You know, that's what it is. A couple of other verses, God says, he's, His eyes scan to and fro. Will He find the people? Will He find one? God's doing a where's Wally. And my question is, are you that one? Are you that one? Would you be God's Wally? Maybe we should change our ministry name. Wally something. Wally Awakening. Ah. Okay? We have a sister ministry from today point onwards. It can be Archivus Awakening or Wally Awakening. Or Wally, whatever. Who says amen? But my question is will we be God's Wally? As you look back to the Christ, a Messiah who identifies his mission, with his mission, a Messiah that identifies with us as sinners. The Father's Son sent to die for us. We were not a people, but we now are His people. We did not know mercy, but today we have received mercy. How can we not respond? Amen? Will we identify with Him? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for His faithfulness and his obedience. Lord, he who knew no sin, Lord, but to fulfill righteousness, he submitted to the work of the forerunner, taking upon himself that role that you have bestowed upon him, high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And not just a flowery title, Lord, but he too was the sin offering to be sacrificed, the scapegoat, that would take upon himself the sins of the world, sent out, cast out into the wilderness, crucified, suffered outside the city gates so that sin is removed from us once and for all. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he identified with all these, Lord, because he identified with us. And Lord, I praise you, Lord, because we who believe in Jesus Christ, today we identify with him 
and we are identified by what He has done and by Him. Lord, we declare we have been buried with Him in His death. And not only that, we have been raised with Him in His resurrection. Today, Lord, we are new people in Christ. We serve a new master called righteousness. And we serve out of a wonderful relationship of love with Jesus by the newness of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, that we will receive and identify our kingdom assignments to be your Wally, to be a nobody, Lord, even in the eyes of the people, but we are known by name, by you. Because you look upon all of us this evening and you say, this is my son, this is my daughter, and the fullness of the Godhead is with us if we would step out by faith with assurance that, lo, you will be with us upon our mission, with our mission, until the end of the age. So thank you, Lord. Enable us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.